If you would, take your Bibles and turn again to the book of Genesis. We're going to be uh, a bit all over the place, at least that's what it'll seem, <laughs> these next five Sundays. Uh, next Sunday is our uh, annual ordination and installation of new officers. So I'm going I'm to step away from Genesis next Sunday to do something with that in mind, with sort of leadership, and we'll look at Isaiah chapter 6 and the commissioning of Isaiah into ministry, which I felt was appropriate for, for next Sunday. Sunday the 22nd, we'll be back in Genesis. We'll look at chapters 44 and 45. It'll be, you see, this morning's part one. That'll be part two. Uh, and then I'm going to take two Sundays away right after that, uh, sort of vision, two vision sermons on the 29th and then the 5th of February to just let you know a little bit about what to look forward to in the life of our church in 2023. I, I do this pretty much every January, I, I think. I want to think vision. Uh, you're going to hear the word discipleship a lot. That's a, a word we're going to talk about uh, uh, quite a bit in those two sermons and beyond. And so that's what uh, will be coming on those two Sundays. And then Sunday, February 12th, we'll be back in Genesis until we're done, uh, which will take us right up to Easter. So that's what's, that's what's coming this morning. Uh, Genesis 43 in a sermon I've entitled, A Family Reconciled Part 1. Uh, you, you need 43, 44, and 45, or this reconciliation process between Joseph and his brothers. The climactic moment, really, of the whole Joseph narrative is in 45 when he reveals himself. I am Joseph, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, but just to remind you, since it's been, I think, about seven Sundays since we looked at Genesis, where, where are we uh, as we come to chapter 43? Joseph, of course, is in Egypt. He was sold uh, into slavery by his brothers. Uh, there's a famine in the land, and so uh, his brothers obviously don't know he's uh, still alive and doing well in Egypt. But they go from Canaan in chapter 42 to Egypt looking for food. And they see Joseph there, but again, they don't know it's him. And so there's a lot of drama there. Joseph ex uh, accuses them of being spies. They do get the food they need, and they have now since gone back to Canaan the food's run out, and now it's time to go back to Egypt again. Okay, now Simeon is there because Joseph had told his brothers, I'm not going to believe you that you're not spies unless you bring your youngest brother this, this second time. So that's, as our story opens, they are in Canaan, and they're about to say, all right, food's run out, we've got to go back and get some more. With that in mind, let me read for us Genesis 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had, brought, they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and he will arise and go that he may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you, and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. 
Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned to the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Bring the men into the house, and slaughter an animal, and make ready for the men, or to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him, and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, Is it because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we, also, that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys? So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O oh my Lord, we came down to the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know what, who put our money in our sacks. He said, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. Then Joseph came home. They, br they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to the ground. And he inquired about the welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and then by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's, Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. O oh Lord, would you teach us now from your word that we would behold wondrous things from it? Lord, we thank you for your grace. Would you give it to us now that we may receive with gladness all that your word says to us today? That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. From time to time, I have mentioned quotations to you by Corey Tinboom. Maybe you have read her story, The Hiding Place. It's an excellent book. She has a unique perspective on suffering and the Christian life. The most interesting, in my opinion, of the stories about Corey Ten Boom was not actually something that she experienced in the concentration camp, but a story that she tells of herself about two years after her release. She said, I was in a church in Munich, and it was then that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat 
and a brown felt hat that he clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear most in that bitter and bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, and they are gone forever. Solemn faces stared back at me, she said, not quite daring to believe what I had just said. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, they gathered their things in silence, and they left the room in silence. And that's when I saw him. The balding and heavyset man, he had worked his way forward to try to get to me. One moment I saw him in his overcoat and brown hat, and the next minute in my mind's eye, I saw the blue uniform and the visored cap and with its skull and crossbones. It all came back with a rush. In my mind, I saw the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of having to walk past him naked. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland, and this man was, had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we had been sent. And now he was standing in front of me, his hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein, he said. How good it is to know, as you say, that all our sins are now at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had just spoken of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course, how could he, one of thousands of prisoners he had attended to. But I remembered him. The leather crop swinging from his belt, it was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and the blood within me froze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me, I thought. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me of the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips. Will you forgive me? I stood there. I stood there as one knew that they had been forgiven of all they had done, but Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand held out, but to me, it seemed like hours, having to do the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. But I knew I had to do it. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were, also, were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars they now had. Those that nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there with a the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. Will you supply the feeling? So woodenly and mechanically, I extended my hand and thrust it into his. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started to my shoulder, it raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being and brought tears to my eyes. I forgive you, I cried. I forgive you with all my heart. 
And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. Oh, how I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that mercy and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed out for me from that day on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, he concludes, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. That's true. It's different, but I would imagine the same kind of difficulty in forgiving a Nazi captor is exactly the difficulty Joseph no doubt had in forgiving his brothers who had sold him into slavery, left him for dead, hated him in every way, And yet, we see the same kind of tremendous forgiveness coming from Joseph unto his brothers as Corey Tinboom in the previous story. Now, the emphasis of the chapters 43 to 45 is the change that takes place in the minds and hearts of the brothers. And I will highlight that. But I think we ought to be quite in awe of the forgiveness that Joseph freely extends unto his brothers. Maybe something like this has never happened to you, but I know that each of us in this room has found forgiveness to be very difficult in their life at some point to someone. And it's not that you're going to get to the place in your life, I got it. (laughs) I now have no trouble with forgiveness. Of course not. We can take great uh, uh, instruction, I think, from Corey Ten Boom when she says, no, it's not something that I learned. I can't store up the good feelings. I only draw them fresh from God each day. Indeed, that is so. So how does this family get from something that's been so torn apart to chapters 45 and then 50 when you see them back together again? They have overcome a lot, just as many of our families have. First, I want us to see the resentment, or probably more specifically, the potential resentment. Are Joseph's brothers going to treat Benjamin the same way they treated Joseph? Is the anger and the envy and the resentment for Benjamin, who now is the favored son, is it, is it the same as it had been for Joseph? Joseph wants to know that. And then secondly, it's the recognition that the brothers clearly have that they have been given so much. Do we recognize the same? And then lastly, we see the beginnings of a reconciliation. So number one, it's the resentment. How is God going to bring about reconciliation in this family? Well, Joseph would like to know if these brothers are the same brothers that he knew 22-ish years ago, or are they changed? And what we see from our passage, they are changed. And we begin to see that primarily in the person of Judah. We saw him back in chapter 38, not doing the kinds of things a changed person in Christ would do. But he is obviously a different man 22 years on. Again, a reminder where we are. There's a severe famine. It's time to go back to Egypt to find food. And Judah reminds his father, Dad, okay, we do need to go get food. But unless we take Benjamin, this will be, <laughs> this will be a fruitless trip. Okay? The man, of course they don't know it's Joseph yet, but they just refer to him as the man in the first part of this passage. The man said, unless we come with our youngest brother, we're not even going to get a hearing. 
We're not going to get an audience, okay? We've got to take him. Joseph, not happy about that, finally capitulates, doesn't he? And he offers a prayer. May God grant you mercy with the man. This concept of mercy is going to permeate these next three chapters. It's God's mercy upon them that allows all these things to happen. God is merciful to Joseph. God is merciful to his brothers. As for me, Jacob says, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. Some commentators suggest that he's just, this is just a comment here of resignation. Maybe. I think it could also be interpreted of he has completely given over this situation unto God. Or maybe it's a little bit of both. Have you ever had a mixed motivation before? Have you ever had a mixed emotions about something? Of course, we do this all the time. Was it a little bit resignation, a little bit, God, I'm, I'm giving this to you even though I really don't like it, but I know you're in control and I know you're sovereign and good. That's probably more accurate. And so they come back. They come back to Egypt. They arrive and they're invited in for a big feast in Joseph's house. And initially, they're not so excited about that. What's, what's this all about? Oh, it's about the money that had been put back into our, the, our, grains of, uh, our sacks of grain. Or it's, uh, you, you know, all that, that we had done to Joseph, we've been found out, and now this is punishment for all that. But the steward, or the chief servant of Joseph, quickly puts their mind at ease, doesn't he? Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. I got your money. It's no good here, okay? God has blessed you. So that would have, of course, put them at ease. And now they're invited into the house for a great meal. Simeon, their brother, who had been left in Egypt for all this time, he's brought out to them. They know that he's okay. Joseph returns home. He asks, about, hey, how's, how's your father slash dad doing, right? Is he alive and well? And then he sees brother, his brother, Benjamin, who likely was about eight or nine years old the last time he saw him. Now he's in his early 30s, and he's overcome with emotion. And this is the second time now that he excuses himself. He goes and cries, and he comes back. He comes back in. It's time to eat. Okay? And there's three separate groups that have this meal. This is actually an important point to the text here. They don't all eat together. Joseph eats by himself. Okay, he's, he's the ruler. The Egyptians, they, they find uh, Hebrews, particularly shepherds, to be an abomination. They simply, religiously speaking, in their minds, cannot eat with them. So they have a table for themselves. And then it's the brothers who have a table. And a servant, apparently, goes and gets the food from Joseph's table and brings it to their table. So there's three different groups here. Years ago... Joseph's brothers had shared a meal together as Joseph cried for mercy from the pit, that he didn't get it, and now they're coming pleading for mercy, and Joseph freely gives it to them. They're astonished because Joseph seats them in perfect order of their age, from oldest down to the youngest. Uh, some commentators tell you what, what the mathematical probability is of doing this. I don't know. I, I mean... I think you could probably get close just because they're not all the same. You know, they don't all look the same, right? There, there's, a, there's an age thing here, but still, nonetheless, that was a startling thing to them. He sat us 
perfectly from descending order and age. But this is a test. He told them back in chapter 42, I'm not going to believe anything you say unless you bring your youngest to me. All of this is a test. So he seats Benjamin down and he just starts piling the food on, their plate, on his plate. Five times as much. What's the point? Last time you saw a brother receive favoritism, me, in a coat of many colors, you hated me for that. What are you going to do now when a younger brother receives favoritism by having the food piled on his plate? Are you going to treat him the same way? Are you the same guys that I knew all those years ago? Are you going to be envious? Are you going to resent just as you did with me? Envy is what had driven Joseph's brothers to do what they did. Envy is slightly different than covetousness that we did, that we quoted, uh, or that we uh, recited together in our affirmation of faith. To covet something says, you have it and I want that. Envy is slightly different. Envy says, you have something I want, I don't want you to have it anymore. I want you to lose it. In some senses, it's, it's a bit more sinister, isn't it? You have something great, I don't want it, I want you to lose it. And this is what they're doing here. They're in, they had been envious. They didn't want Joseph's coat of many colors. They didn't care about it. They wanted him to not have it. They were jealous of him. Have you ever been envious of someone before? Have you ever seen that envy ruin a relationship? You resented somebody because they had something that you didn't have, and all you really wanted, you just wanted them to lose it. You wanted them to not have it anymore. You resent the way someone looks. You resent the money that they have. You resent the vacations they get to go on that you don't. You resent their job, their status, their abilities. You resent the accolades they receive. You resent the attention that they get, that you want that attention. This isn't unusual in Genesis. It seems like everywhere we turn, we see this kind of resentment, don't we? Cain resents Abel. Sarah resents Hagar. Isaac and Rebekah cause this tension amongst Jacob and Esau. They resent one another. Rachel and Leah resent each other. Jacob and Laban's servants are resentful of each other. And now in our own story. And so Joseph, you can see it as, he's, as the food is piled onto Benjamin's plate, as if he's leaning in. He's looking at their eyes. He's watching their body language. Are these the same resentful, murderous men that I knew 22 years ago? Or have they changed? What Are you honest? Are you different? Are you still jealous? The brother, brothers seem to take complete responsibility. They bring the money back. They retrieve their brother from... You know, they could have just said, we're going to cut our losses and not ever go back to Egypt. And poor Simeon, but no big deal. It's just one brother. We've got a lot of others. They don't. They recognize God's work in all of this, don't they? They've been willing to give up a brother before. Why not do it again? And then the very end of the text, the food is piled on Benjamin's plate and it says they ate, they, ate, they drank, and they were merry with him. Not with Joseph, because they're not eating with him. They ate and drank and were merry with their brother Benjamin after they have just seen the favoritism given to him. There's no jealousy. There's no resentment. How, how could this have taken place? 
How do you get rid of the resentment in your own heart? It doesn't matter if you're five. It doesn't matter if you're a hundred. We all struggle with jealousy and envy and resentment. We all do. And the only way to overcome that, I think, is to recognize, second point, a recognition of all that you have. It's, it's a willingness to say, yes, they have great stuff, but look at what I have. Look at what God's done for me. Look at the grace he's poured out in my life. So rather than desiring what others have or, or wanting them to lose it, let me focus on what I indeed have. They acknowledge it. We are sinful. God has blessed us in the giving of the money. He's being merciful to us as he is here already. You know, God had awakened the conscience of the brothers seeing that they had a need. They needed food. They needed forgiveness. <laughs> they needed protection. And they, all, they see this material need that they have and brought them into a need for God's forgiveness. We have the same need, don't we? But what is the need we have once we come unto Christ? We still need Him, don't we? We need Him in a fresh way to give us strength to forgive or strength to continue to walk in His ways. We still have that need. We're in the same position. And perhaps our need as American Christians, more than anything, is to realize all that we have been given. A recognition. But so often we focus simply on the things that we don't have. Or it's not fair that what they have and I don't have it. It's bad theology. It's not just a, it's not just a bad character trait. It's deficient theology. When we look at others and say, I deserve to have what they do, it's a denial of all the wonderful things that you do have. Your food, your job, your health, your family, your home, your clothes, your vacations, your friends, they are all gift to you. It's all of grace. You have a car to drive home in after the service is over. I don't think that anyone in this room has a question of whether or not they will be able to afford food today for lunch. It is a gift. It is grace to you. You have someone that you can call when you have a need. You have a church family that loves you and can care for you. Yes, there are some sitting in the pews here this morning that have more than you do. They have a nicer car. They take better vacations. Maybe they have a better support group than you do. That's nice. You have wonderful things too. Recognize those wonderful things. So the question for us may not be, are you content with the things that you have? Though that is an important question to ask. But maybe the better question is, are you content with what other people have? Good for them. In other words, you want to pile more food on Benjamin's plate? Go for it. Give him ten times as much. Because we're grateful for the things God has given unto us. And the mercy he has shown and poured into our lives. Can we rest content in his goodness for me, for you? Can I rejoice in his, in his mercy? Or am I just constantly looking around to see what everybody else has got? And I resent them for it. Lastly is the beginnings of reconciliation. You know, Joseph does the exact opposite of what his brothers had done. He offers them forgiveness. He brings about reconciliation. And it had to be him, didn't it? Because he was the offended party. 
He was the person of, uh, of influence in this relationship. He was, he was the one in power and authority here. And he devises a plan to reconcile his family back together. And we'll just look at the beginnings of that here, and we'll see it more in two Sundays in chapters 44 and 45. But what was it going to take for this broken family to come back together? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is saying, you have incurred a debt against me, and I'm not going to make you pay it. Now, that's easy to see when it's a monetary thing. You owe me $20, don't worry about it, okay? The, the, the debt still pays, paid by me, right? I, I'm going to have to come up with that $20. It's much more difficult to define, isn't it, when it's some relational, emotional debt. But when you look to that person, I'm not going to pay you back for that. You don't deserve this kindness. You don't deserve me to treat you in this way, but I'm going to. Why? Because of the love that I have in Christ Jesus. Because of the way that I've been forgiven. I've got to draw fresh from that every day. Or I'll sink down into that, that resentment of this text. Forgiveness then, Westminster, is the hallmark, or maybe more rightly, a hallmark of the Christian life. But it doesn't come naturally to us, does it? Holding grudges, that comes naturally. Bitterness, oh, that's, yeah, that's natural, isn't it? Ending a relationship, that's natural. It's natural because it's easy. That's the easy way, isn't it? Reconciling, forgiving, that's really hard. It's messy, and you've got to swallow a ton of pride. <laughs> Usually it's going to destroy your pride. In Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus a question. He's trying to apply the command of forgiveness to his life. Lord, how long or how often... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, we should stop and acknowledge that Peter's intentions are very good here. He, he misses the point. But the rabbis of his day said it was three times. You only had to forgive somebody three times and then, you know, forget them. And Peter's saying, what about seven? Well, he's going significantly above that. But he misses the point, doesn't he? In fact, his answer is really no better than the rabbi's answer. Because he assumes that there is a limit to our forgiveness in someone's life. That they're going to do so much, we're going to say, nope, nope, you're cut off. <laughs> we assume there's a point of no return. And Jesus says this is wrong, and he puts an exclamation point on how wrong it is. Because how does he respond? No, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Of course, Jesus is not asking us to do the math here so as to find the exact number as if it's 490 times. I trust that you don't have a, a sheet of paper on your refrigerator with tally marks and you look to your spouse and say, honey, that's 485, you're getting close to the end. Right? No, it's not the suggestion here. Peter, you thought forgiveness was going to be something relatively easy and manageable. It isn't. It isn't. Now, that doesn't mean we're to keep silent when someone offends us or sins against us. It doesn't mean that you're meant to be a doormat. Not at all. It doesn't mean that the, the trust level should be restored to its, its previous level. No, it's not saying any of that at all. It's not saying forgive and forget. It's saying, I'm not going to hold this debt against you. I'm not going to pay you back for what you did. I'm going to cancel it. And I'm going to work hard to restore this relationship to what it was prior. 
He's telling our hearts, you must forgive. Not just do your best about it. He's saying, you must forgive. And he then tells the story of this servant who owes the king 10,000 talents. Somewhere in the six to seven billion dollar range in modern standards. An insurmountable debt. And the king forgives the debt. And then the man who's just been forgiven turns around and asks, demands the money owed from a servant of his that was negligible in comparison to what he'd just been forgiven of. He demands it and throws the man in jail until he can pay it. If we don't see ourselves as that first servant in the story, we're never going to understand true kingdom forgiveness. We're never going to get it. That the debt that you owed is completely insurmountable. And yet we foolishly say to God sometimes, like this servant said to the king, be patient with me, I'll pay it back. No, you can't. No, you won't because you can't. But even more than that, you're not being asked to pay it back. You're being asked to accept the forgiveness that Christ offers. He has paid the debt through his perfection and through his death on the cross. He doesn't want you to pay it back. We could say he wants you to pay it forward. You have been forgiven, now go forgive other people. That is how you show the love that I have given you by loving others in the same way. No, the person you're forgiving does not deserve that forgiveness, but neither did you. For those of us who have received such amazing grace, we will then be full of that grace. Let's be honest. Often people in the church can be some of the most ungracious, some of the most catty, some of the most bitter and sinister people that you will ever meet. This ought not to be. This ought to be a place where we love each other. This ought to be a place where forgiveness is freely and gladly given. Freely and gladly given. Is that hard? Yeah, it's hard. Because it goes against so much of what is in us. We want to pay somebody back. We want to make them feel the way they made us feel. They deserve to feel the way that they made us feel. And to not do that is to pay a debt that you're not asking them to pay. To not do that hurts, but it glorifies God and makes us know, I understand what kingdom forgiveness really is. So do you understand this morning all that you have been forgiven of? Can you understand perhaps the amazing statement of Christ from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. When Stephen says similarly in Acts 7, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. He's being stoned to death by people that hate him. And he looks and says, Lord, forgive them. Don't lay this at their charge. Lord, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. You have been forgiven of great things. Now let us go for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Westminster Presbyterian Church, for the sake of the friendship, for the sake of Johnson City, extend that type of loving, gracious forgiveness unto others. Because you have been extended that kind of mercy by God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for the type of reconciliation and pursuing and forgiveness that 
Joseph is extending to his brothers here. Lord, would you help us to draw the strength for such forgiveness each day from you? We don't have it within us, but you have that and you offer it to us. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that you have given us in Christ. Thank you for the righteousness that you have clothed us in. And Lord, that we would go and now do likewise in forgiving others. Lord, thank you for your loving kindness to us each and every day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? And then remain standing as we sing the doxology together. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.